Hello and welcome to the RamGad Pod, the Realtors Association of Maui Government Affairs Director podcast. I am your host, Jason Economou, Government Affairs Director, and I am joined today by the Honorable Michael P. Victorino, Mayor for the Maui of County. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good morning, aloha. How are you doing today? Very well. Um, as you well know that um, we just come off another big, massive fire in the West Maui Mountains yesterday. and. Um, this morning I can report that things are looking very good. If this rain holds up and the cold weather, maybe we'll get this under control very quickly. So, but I want to thank you for being here. And, and uh, I'm sorry if I wasn't a little bit more prepared, but I had, had to be fighting some fires yesterday and it was a real different day again, as you know, when they occur. I understand completely. I'm thankful for your time and I will try not to take up too much of it. Uh, sometimes my podcasts go for like two hours, but we mm. won't do that today. Yeah. Um, so let's jump right into it. Sure. So, Mr. Mayor, um, tell us about yourself. Tell us about your family. Where'd you grow up? Well, first of all, I was born and raised on the Big Island in Hilo and I spent most of my youth there. Um, I spent about five years on Kauai because my father was transferred to open up a shop for Hilo Ironworks up in Kauai. And we lived there from 1959 to 1963. And uh, had a lot of great childhood memories of Kauai and I still have a very fond uh, aloha for the island of Kauai and its people. Uh, we moved back in 63 to um, Hilo and I stayed there until I moved to Maui in 1973. And so, uh, I attended school, St. Joseph, Hilo High. I attended parochial as well as public schools throughout the years in, 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 um, from, Kenny, from K to 12th grade. Upon graduation from Hilo High School in 1970, I went to work for, uh, at that time I had been working for the pineapple during the summer, coming to the island of Lanai. So not only did I have a lot of experience on Maui, but I also went to Lanai for a few summers to work in the pineapple industry. I picked pine there and it was a very, very um, uh, enlightening experience as far as our agriculture, which as you well know today, has kind of almost weighed away and faded into the sunset. So, you know, uh, I've been blessed to have opportunities to work both in the agricultural industry and in the commercial entity. In 1969, when I went back to Hilo, uh, in fact, excuse me, in 1970, when I went back to Hilo, I was hired by Zales Jewelry Corporation and I started as a stock clerk and, and, and rose to the rank of uh, assistant, first assistant, and uh, opened up the store here in Maui County in uh, September of 1973. And that's why I came back to Maui. Uh, I had spent many of my uh, uh, summers with my maternal grandparents and aunts and an uncles that lived here in Maui, many of my cousins. So I've been very acquainted with Maui from a very young, young age. And I remember when the days when Paia was the biggest commercial entity and biggest town in uh, Maui, where Wailuku was the actual, like the commercial center and as well as the governmental center. You know, the government building, state, county, all were located here in Wailuku. And I remember EL Theater as being the biggest thing in town. When you went to EL Theater, you had first run movies and it was like a real enjoyment. And, Movies cost 25 cents back then, you know. I'm dating myself, but things have changed. And even though Wailuku is still what I call a quaint um, town, uh, the business there, businesses have changed, you know. The old businesses that were there, the Yokuchi bakeries and the Imur Jewelers and others have gone to the wayside and, and moved on. And, and some of it was because 
the parents on them, the original owners felt that they wanted better for their children and they asked that their children go to school, become doctors, lawyers, engineers, teachers, but better their lives instead of doing this menial work. They felt menial work at, the, at their businesses, although those businesses did very well for themselves and thrived on Maui. They just felt this was a lot of hard work. Yeah. Getting up at four o'clock in the morning. I remember KT, uh, uh, what do you call that? TK Supermarket down in Happy Valley. Um, uh, Hazel and her, her husband uh, used to, uh, I used to sit down with them and I would say, why don't you have your children involved? And they would say, this is hard work, Mike. We're up at four o'clock in the morning cooking rice to make spam musubi. We're cooking uh, lao laos. We're cooking uh, 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 ham and eggs to make breakfast plates. And you know, all these different aspects of the business. It wasn't just a store, it was a gathering place. And they felt like this wasn't for their children. And they wanted their children to have better opportunities than they did. Although I think they had great, great presence in this community. And so as you can see, TK Supermarket is gone, Ooka's is gone, and all the old time places pretty much have left us. Uh, and, 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 and whether it was uh, Gilberts and, and, and others, we lose a sense of history when we lost these places, you know? And so for me, what's coming in is good. I think change is important and changes will come, but we've lost some of the institutional uh, commercial businesses and institutional families that made Maui great. I mean, we still have the Kazukis at Homemade Bakery, and we still have a few others that still exist, but they're far and few between. And yes, I know change comes, and I understand why they did not put a succession plan in place, because they wanted better for their, fu for their future generations. And I respect that, and I, I thank them for what they've done for us. Yeah. I, I want to jump back a little bit and sure. touch on a few things because we don't have a ton of time yes. and I'm fascinated by your background. Um, one of the things that I love is your commitment to public service. Mm -hmm. um, you have spent a lot of volunteer hours working with youth in sports. Um, you didn't mention it when you were talking about your own childhood, but were you an athlete? I, I didn't have much time to participate in sports. My father, uh, and we were fairly poor, and I'll just say it in that manner. And like a lot of us, we live from paycheck to paycheck. My father really was the only breadwinner for many years, and then my mom then subsequently would augment his income by working at the school cafeteria, worked at Dairy Queen, worked at, in, in different uh, businesses throughout uh, uh, the Big Island and Kauai. But it was difficult, and so my father also had uh, what I call a subsistence farm, you know, where they would raise animals and vegetables, to augment what we, we needed to survive on. And so I was uh, tasked being the oldest in my family to take care of the farm and take care of the animals, you know. So I was responsible to get home after school and make sure the, the chickens were fed, the pigs, the cattle, whatever we had, and to make sure in our gardens were taken care of if there was, and if there was anything to be picked or my mom need anything, then I was responsible for that. When you're the oldest, you're usually tasked with this job. And as years went on, also watching my younger siblings and making sure that they stayed out of trouble. And if they got in trouble, it was my fault. Okay, I got you. So I've learned to uh, uh, take care of others, you know, because that was something I was told that I needed to do at a very young age. And through the years, um, I always envied those who could go play Little League and go play uh, uh, other sports that I could not really participate in. Fact, I was probably an intermediate or even 
uh, most of the organized sports I played was when I got to high school, you know. And so, and in high school, I was able to play JV football, and I uh, wrestled, ran track, and you know, so I got to participate, but it was at the high school level, which at, a, at, at some point would give me a disadvantage for those who had played from young years and had that, they had the knowledge of the game. Athletically, I could keep up with them, but the knowledge was lacking. And so when the crucial moments to make decisions, sometimes I wasn't as aware as they were what that decision meant and the impact on the game. So, but I never, I never let that bother me, you know, and, and even when I went to college, junior college, I played basketball and, you know, I made the teams and never a star, but always a participator, you know, always contributing, sitting on the bench and learning the game from the coaches and others that are around me. And so I think it, it helped form an idea that I want to make sure my children, my sons, as they were growing up, had opportunities to participate. And... Um, both Michael and Shane, my two sons, uh, were fairly good athletes in, in their own <laughs> respects and, and, and enjoyed playing. And they knew that we had our golden rule. You had to have a, at least a 2.5 average in your grades or you don't play. And we were even in elementary and high school, uh, uh, intermediate. If they weren't accomplishing and they weren't doing their schoolwork, we pulled them from the game. And I know sometimes coaches, including myself, would be like, oh my God, but you know what, you, if you don't teach them the right lessons at a young age, they're not gonna learn it later. Yeah. So we had to show them the consequences of not doing what was right, or if they misbehave, or they did something, you know, uh, that wasn't proper, wasn't correct, wasn't respectful. Hey, we weren't afraid to say, you're not playing today. And I had, I can tell you there were incidents when, when Shane, my youngest son, would get out of hand, that mom would actually literally walk on the field, pick him up, carry him, put him on the sideline, and say, you're not playing and tell the coach, he's not playing. And the coach would look at me and like, I have nothing more to say. <laughs> you know, so, and, Mom's and, the boss. Yes, mom, and, and, and my wife was a great contributor to our family, you know. Yeah, I would say she was like the pillar. I was the foundation, and we worked together to make sure our children got the proper education, the proper religious education, and, and really taught the, hopefully, the right lessons uh, of life, you know, uh, am I sure on that? Sometimes I, I question even what we've done, but I think I'm proud to say my family is pretty well respected. They've done well in this community. They've, they're contributors like we have been. And so for public service, you know, getting involved as coaches, you know what led me into that. I wanted kids and I wanted my children to be a part of. And one of the things I learned very early in, in, in life is that not a lot of people want to coach. Not a lot of people want to mm. take that responsibility. It's a lot of time and effort. And really, for me, it became like, in some instances, being a babysitter. Parents would drop their kids off at 3.30 and then sometimes wouldn't even come back and I had to take the kids to their home and tell the parents, oh, you forgot to pick them up. And, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I saw this. You know, I saw this as a need and I wanted to feel that need. And even though I was working at times two and three jobs, uh, I still found the time to do it. Yes, maybe I only had three or four hours sleep, but I always found the time to get things done. And the, what is the old cliche? Give a busy man uh, more, uh, give a busy man something to do and he'll find a way to get it done. And I've always kind of worked on that premise. And so um, my service was really dictated by my contribution to my family because my 
Parents had always told me, what you do outside to make your community better will keep your home safer. And so I've always kept that in the back of my mind, that what we do outside helps our home to be a better place. That is a great lesson. You know, so, uh, and my parents were contributors. My dad and my mom helped many, whether they were um, the Catholic Men's Organization, helping CYO, helping her lion or lioness clubs, and all these different organizations that they belong to very active politically. My dad was very active in the political world. Never as a candidate, mm. he never wanted to do that. And this man had only had a second, second grade education, but was very astute to what was going on around him. He wasn't the most articulate person, but he's very sharp in understanding what the dynamics of the community meant and how we all had to work together to help it. So politics was another way he he uh, uh, was involved. And so I guess in the world of the political realm, public service, I kind of got an early indoctrination, if you want to use that term, and uh, helping him going to these different functions, you know, setting up, cleaning up. You know, I know one of the big chills is many of these political parties, whatever the bottles in those days, or bottles, glass bottles were left <laughs> over from soda and all that, you got, they gave it to you and you went down to the recycling center and sold it and you had a few dollars. <laughs> and a dollar would go a long way back in those days, you know. So, I was, you know, I, I came up in a, in, a, in a world that we didn't have much, but we didn't know the difference. It didn't bother us. And we enjoyed the most simple things in life, you know. And beyond taking care of the animals and, you know, we had cattle in pastures, so we had to go down and, and round them up and bring them in and feed them. So I got a lot of good exercise running around chasing animals and, bring, and herding them back in, you know. So uh, I, I, I would always classify my childhood as a good childhood. Yeah, maybe I, you know, I, you know, maybe I would have wanted more. Maybe I, and, I, and I do say this, I would have loved to have played more sports at a younger age. Mm. But life, that's the cards I were dealt, just like in this office. I'm dealt certain hands and I play those hands the best I can. I do the best I can with what I gi I'm given. So my childhood is not much different than many of us out here. And the, the commitment to the community, um, I honestly wish more people had that commitment. Unfortunately, a lot of people, it's about me and not we, the community. Um, but those who do, like myself, who feel this way, I think um, always gravitate to leadership positions in all aspects of our life, whether it's at your church, at your school, I was PTA president, and all these different aspects, you somehow gravitate because people say, oh, you're willing to do that. Okay, now we'll elect you. And so you, you rise, and in some cases you're rising because they don't want to do anything and they want you to do it. But I've always had this philosophy when, when I take leadership, everybody contributes or it don't get done. If you expect me to do it myself, it's never going to get done. And even as mayor, I say that all the time. It's about we, the community. I need everybody at the table helping. We need to work together. Sometimes we're not going to agree. Got you. Sometimes we may even have polarizing issues. But we have to remember in most areas we can come together, agree to disagree, and work to find solutions that we all can live with. Mm. One, of the, um, one of the things that you mentioned in your campaign website um, about yourself was that you're not really a traditional learner. And you, you mentioned that your, your father didn't have a lot of education and that your parents were, were hard workers. Um, how did you overcome not necessarily being gifted in academics um, in a traditional manner to, to become successful? 
Well, I think there's a number of areas that really helped me. Let me start by saying I had some very, very good nuns, very good <laughs> brothers that had this resolve that you're not, a, you're not a dummy. You can learn. You know how to learn. You're a smart young man, but we're going to make sure that you do it. So I appreciate that, that my, even my parents, my, my parents always said, uh, my father always said, I give you three, three, three things in life a roof over your head, food on your table, and education. If you use all three, you will, you know, you'll be, you'll be successful. And education was a means to be successful. I think when it comes to learning to read, um, because the traditional way of sit there and read and spell and take spelling bees, spelling contests, I never did well, mm. never did well. What really made me excited and I used to love to read is comics. Now, I love comics. Comics are pictorial, but you've got to read what they're saying or what's happening to understand the progression of the comic, right? And what else made me or helped me read faster or learn to read faster is Japanese movies. I used to go with money and my friends who were Japanese, and of course, it's all English subtitles, so you better read fast and watch the movie, <laughs> you know, kind of making sure you understood what was going on. And so that was my first lesson in speed reading was going to these Japanese movies and other uh, 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 movies that have English subtitles. So you, you, you got to watch the movie and read and watch read, read, and so you, you, you keep up or you get lost, right? Because they're not speaking English. They're speaking another language. Japanese was predominant, but there were other movies that I went to that they spoke other languages. And so you either learn to read the English subtitles quickly and paying attention back and forth, or you'd lose it. Um, I was more of a pictorial type person. I like colors. I mean, if you put colors and you give me graphs, I, I'm really good at that. But if you tell me to sit there and read something verbatim that's 20 pages long, uh, I'm going to be very bored very quickly, you know. Mm. Uh, even though today I spend a lot of time reading a lot of laws, ordinances, changes uh, that, that, that others want to make, whether the departments, the council, whatever it might be. But growing up, Traditional learning wasn't what I would have fit. I, I didn't fit well into it. I'll say it that way. Today, like Pumaikai and Pukuku and many of our other schools uh, have gone into teaching children to the arts, teaching children to music and other areas. And I think this is important because not every child learns traditional ways. So if you have a good blend, it helps those who really are pretty sharp and pretty smart, but just don't want to do it this way. They just feel like they're not able to sit there and just, here comes Johnny on the train. You know, they're not going to read that way. But if you show Johnny on the train coming at you, they got it. They yeah. got it. So I, I, I encourage uh, different forms of learning. I think that's very important in today's society. I think um, we all have this thing called smartphones or smart devices and They've changed our world tremendously also. If you need to find something, Google, Google, you know, yeah. and, and you can get your answer, uh, which makes us lazy in something because you don't have to go research it. But on the other, other side of the coin, you don't have to spend a lot of time looking for something. You can find it almost immediately. And then isn't our society more of instant gratification, wanting results now, which is sometimes uh, not a good thing mm. because sometimes we need to sit and learn 
and methodically go through the process so that we make the right decision that have minimal impact on those that that decision affects. However, with that being said, I've learned, you know, do, do your best, you know. Some people never want to change their mind. Some people, and you mentioned that earlier about what formed me to change my opinion on something or, or some issue or something. Yeah, um, if, if you don't mind, I, I would like sure. to ask that question. Sure. Because you've had, you were on the county council mm -hmm. uh, for about a decade, correct? Mm -hmm. And then you've, you've served as mayor now for, for a couple of years. Um, or a year. Yeah, a year. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Don't press me on that one. Okay, you. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sure to you, after all these fires, it feels like more than a couple of years. Probably. Um, but one of the things that I, I'm really curious about is, are there any issues that you, you held very strongly that you evolved on, that you changed your mind on, and, and what really led you to change your mind? Okay. I think, let's start with water, because I think I've become immersed in water through the years, you know. My uh, five years on the Board of Water Supply, um, the 10 years on council, I was either the chair or vice chair of the Water Resource Committee, uh, a part of the AW, American Water Works uh, Association. Uh, I've been a member and a very active uh, government representative for a number of years here on the Hawaii Water Works Association. Um, let's start with water. You know, water at one time was flowing all over these islands. And they were brought in from East Maui and West Maui to tunnels uh, and ditches, and they came to where it needed to go. Well, as the industries like pineapple and sugarcane dissipated and completely shut down, those systems were not taken care of. And so now water has become a challenge getting it from where it is to where it needs to be. Unfortunately, not everybody has built on the leeward side of the island, which is Haiku, Huelo, and then you go all the way around the island to Hana and Kenai and all, um, Kenai, Hana, and further out, right? Um, that's the leeward side. They get a lot of rain, you know? And you know, you get up country, there's areas that get a lot of rain, and there's a lot of areas that are very dry. You come to central Maui, the central plain, fairly dry, as we've been seeing this summer with the immense amount of fires. Pua Kukui, that mountain there, has a lot of rainfall. In fact, at times, has more rainfall than Mount Waialeale. However, with all that being said, the demand for water has grown, even though agriculture has subsided. Some of it is because of the way things have changed in the agriculture industry. Now we no longer can treat uh, uh, or water some of our leafy vegetables with nothing but portable water, you know, cleaning mm -hmm. it. So there's been changes in policies or changes in, in, in the way we govern food safety. And so, you know, then that being said, that changed that. Um, when we closed a lot of the plantations, no one took care of the systems, the uh, ditch systems and all that. So we've had some major storms. You know, last year we had um, Hurricane Lane and we've had other rain bombs and rainstorms that have come in and, 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 and degraded and, and really in some areas destroyed some of the intakes that we had here in Iao, out at Honokahau in West Maui up here in East Maui, some of the intakes that we had along the EMI system. And so now these water systems that we depend on need to be upgraded and repaired. And so now we have this battle. You have the farmers who want more water, which I, I agree on. You want the traditional farmers, the traditional practitioners who want to do kalo and other traditional uh, uh, farming, they need water. You got the public which is supplied by the Maui water, uh, Department of Water Supply, they need water. So you, you have these competing interests 
And so we have a hierarchy on how we set this up. A lot of this is set up by Kuleana rights and, and other imperial rights and other, you know, um, business rights. You know, farmers have to come above, you know, others, you know. So you have this hierarchy that is set up to hopefully kind of manage all of this. Sometimes it still has a lot of challenges and still like we have right now. We have these three uh, water systems that I just spoke of that are being kind of pressured by kuleana, ag, um, uh, what do you call that, uh, traditional usage and cultural practices, as well as domestic use. These three systems are being pressured in many manners. And so with that being said, I always tell people, we've got to step back and let's look how we can work together. Because these systems cost major money to maintain, and so they'll cost us a lot if we buy them and we own them. To maintain these systems are going to cost you, the consumer, a lot of money. So I want to be cognizant of that aspect also. You need water. We need to provide the water. But are you willing to pay for it? And, and, and it gets to a point where you buy a bottle of water, one liter bottle of water, you pay a couple of bucks. We sell a thousand gallons. And when I say sell, I mean that water is a public trust but we need to get the delivery service. So what we're selling you based upon our delivery service is the amount you use. Yeah. And we sell water uh, or we charge you for that delivery service like $2.45 a, 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 a thousand gallons. A thousand gallons. So, you know, you're talking the disparity. How do we make these systems work? Maybe one day it may be $5 for a thousand gallons. But yet when you buy a liter of water for two bucks, you don't think twice about it. And I can be honest, sometimes that water is not as clean as the water coming out of your tap because yeah. you don't know where it's sat. If there's been uh, um, uh, heat conditions that, you know, the uh, plastic bottle itself, the, the, you know, the P PVC that goes into yeah, it, leaching. It, it leaching into the water itself and other chemicals, we don't know. And so um, your, some of your best water will come right out of your tap. I promise you, it's right out of your tap. But... People continue to buy bottled water. They do other means to uh, treat their water because they're afraid that there's contaminants. And let me say, I think our bottled water supply does a fabulous job making sure that contaminants don't get into your drinking water. However, there have been times where different issues have happened, um, breaks in the system, breaks in our lines, and that causes uh, contamination. So it's not 100% foolproof, but in most cases, it works real well. So I've understood water and the water challenges we face. And to live and grow and, and, and thrive in any area, you need water. And probably, you can live without electricity. You could even live without a lot of food. But you can't live without water, especially potable water. It's going to get to you real quick. So, you know, we in the county work very hard to make sure not only our public system, but also the private purveyors are doing the right thing. Board of Health and Department of uh, uh, the uh, state land, uh, the state department of uh, uh, the water commission, mm. I'm sorry, the sea worm and all that. They do a great job mm -hmm. in making sure that we keep water flowing and keep water safe. And only thing I'm going to close with that is I hope everybody continues to work to share their resources because more water is on East End than maybe West End or Central. So let's work together to continue and make sure we don't waste it, you know. So one of the areas that I'm moving into right now, and a source subject, is wastewater, right? And you, you, you've been a part of that. Yes. And, and, 
And, you know, we are now presently moving in and working very hard to utilize a resource which is called R1 water, wastewater that is treated to the tertiary level that you can utilize it for agriculture, you can utilize it for uh, irrigation, you can utilize it in many aspects in our community. I um, mean, look at all these recent fires. You know, I remember Jesse Spencer coming in when I first started on the council in 2007, 8, 9, somewhere around there, and he had his Ma'alaya subdivisions that he wanted to build. He wanted to build housing down there. And he offered the people of Ma'alaya, those condominiums, to build a treatment plant for which they could connect to, because they have systems that now they're being forced to change, so she could build his housing, because the housing would be the really the big contributing uh, element to this treatment plant. And that he was going to use that R1 water, that wastewater, and to put a, a set of um, pipes and, and sprinkler system to spray the water onto the mountainside to keep it green to prevent brush fires. What a novel concept. Yeah. But they said no. They didn't want it. Whatever reason, and I won't go political about it, they said no. And so today, or I should say yesterday, what did you see burning? The same areas in, in, in some cases where we could have had that R1 water treating this dry land and making it green zones. And we've talked, I've talked about that a lot of times. We're doing that, we're doing a, a, a pilot project down in Kihe. Over the next year and a half, we're gonna stretch some water lines from our treatment plant with pumping station and have it uh, available to make these green zones so that when brush fires occur, it gets down to it where the grass is green or the foliage is green and it kind of kills itself. That's a great idea. You know, it's, it's, it's like almost a, a, uh, a barrier between uh, uh, housing or commercial entities and brush land or, or land that's used for, like over here in Kihei, Hono, I forget the name of the ranch, and Haleakala Ranch uh, mm. uh, um, uh, have a lot of ranch land over there, but it's fairly dry because we've had a dry, dry summer. And so all of that, that land is very, very tender, and so all it does is take somebody smoking his marijuana <laughs> and throwing, throwing all the, the, the uh, paper flying into the grass, and it created an 80-acre fire right by Maui Meadows. You know, mm. These are the kind of things that we could prevent by not only having green zones, but making this land more appealable to animals that like cattle and all of that. So there's many plans that we've already instituted years ago that I was on the council, and now as mayor, I want to continue to push on. So this, this litigation and injection well is something that I believe really we should take it to that level and get clear direction because one of the biggest challenges I had on the council and now as mayor and the big beef I've had is we've never had Department of Health, EPA, anybody say this is what you have to do. These are necessary permits and this is the necessary steps we need to take. I don't want to spend our people's money, the taxpayer, and do and make changes and then five years from now have a Supreme Court or have another uh, uh, um, uh, District 9 uh, court say, oh no, that's wrong, go change it. Yeah. And we've spent millions of dollars going in that direction. Tell me the direction you want to take and I'll spend the money to make it happen. And that's what this has all been all about. You know, all the people telling me that I'm killing the reefs and all that. Well, the reefs have made a, somewhat of a comeback in some areas. 
and they, even the plaintiffs, or justice and others, have admitted we're not the only contributor. We're not the only one that has been the big contributor in this area, that overfishing and that human contact. I uh, mean, just global warming. Global warming yeah. and, and, and use uh, different types of uh, sunscreens. Uh, sunscreens and all that have contributed greatly to that also. So, you know, I just feel like I don't like being the poster child because the district court and the, and the local court said, yeah, you guys were the reason for it. And now they're saying, no, we're not. You know, oh, we were a contributor, but not the major contributor. So I'm just saying for me, this case means a lot to this county and gives us the opportunity to have clear guidance in what we need to do and how I spend the people's money. You know, and if it's going to increase rates by two or three times what we're paying for sewer bills and all that, well, it, whatever has to be done will be done. But I want people to know that I don't want to waste money going in one direction and after a few years be told I need to go in another direction and retrofitting and going back and changing everything. No, that's not an efficient way to run business. Businessmen like you and I know that you don't want to do it right from the beginning and not keep changing because it costs you money, costs you time, and many times it's ineffective. Yeah. No, I, I think you're I think you're spot on with this issue. Um, it's it's fascinating that that you've been um, you really are doing the right thing for the people, um, but you've been labeled some pretty mean things. <laughs> I have too. Um, how do you cope with that? Like, does does it get under your skin? My my wife pointed out that I over the course of my past year at this job, I have been heckled more in this year by by strangers than ever in my life. Um, how do you deal with, with the, the negative treatment from people who don't really understand the issues as well as you do? I think I have two simple philosophies. I have my family and I have my God. Mm. And those two are my constant. Those are the ones that I go home to each and every day. Our Lord that I pray to each and every day to give me the guidance, the strength, the knowledge, the wisdom to do the right things. I believe He gives me that power, you know. Um, you can be whatever religion you are, and I do not question. I do not question the sacredness of areas and mountains and all that because the traditional or the tribal people or the native people have that, and I believe they should be respected for that. However, that's the way I look at it. And so long as my family is there, and especially my lovely wife who says, you know what, you're doing okay, I'm okay. When I'm not doing okay, she lets me know. And she points it out very vehemently what, I don't, what she thinks I'm not doing right. So I have a check and balance, not here at, on the county level, not here with the council, not here with even the voters. I have it with my wife. And she makes, I, makes me keep straight and narrow as far as how I deal with everything in this county. But with that being said, the people can be assured whenever I make a decision, I've done my homework, I try to make the best educated decision I can make and that looking at the impact long term looking at the big picture not just today what's going to happen not just what tomorrow means what the tomorrow tomorrow's meant mm. and generations how they're going to be impacted you know I, I I'm a firm believer there's climate change you know I don't think anybody can deny that we've seen that right here in Maui County we've seen it in the world you know the Arctic meltdowns and there's areas that have been hotter than ever and there's areas that are having Frozen, uh, they're having winters now and had winters last month, which never happened before. Yeah. So there, there is a climate change occurring. Right. 
the scientists in, in all aspects have not been able to agree how severe, number one, and what's causing it. Yes, mankind is a big contributor, so we got to look at ourselves first. However, there are other, it's a cyclical. We've had times in our history when, when our, our temperatures have risen tremendously. Was it mankind at that time, or was it both? Uh, or was it more cyclical? So there's that debate that's going on out there. For me, there's no time to debate. There needs time to be changes being made. You know, um, our children are coming to us and saying, hey, if you don't change and make systemic changes over the next 10 to 20 years, 30 or 40 years from now, we have no future to look forward to. They're correct. And I take that very sincerely, you know. And so I'm working in every aspect, you know, what is putting more electric cars in our fleets and cutting, um, cutting electric buses and cutting down carbon emissions. Um, looking for more buses to run instead of cars on the road. Having more public transportation, which really accommodates the needs of the people, not just to have public transportation, but really accommodate the needs of our people, our working people and those who are not economically uh, able to buy cars. Our millennials, they're changing. Yeah. They want a different world. They don't want to have cars. Or they want to share cars or they want to share transportation. They want to live in multimodal areas where they have buses or trains or you know, things like that. They want bikeable, walkable. They want convenience. They want to be able to walk down the street and go to the, they want to walk to the theater. They don't want to get in a car. And if they have to, they don't own cars. They want to use Uber, they mm. want to use Lyft. They want to use something of that nature. So it's a different world. Millennials think differently. They'll probably have 30, 40 jobs before they decide, if they ever decide to have one, you know? And they're living today for today. I don't know if that's good and bad. And I'll say it in that manner. Um, you've got to plan for the future because the future will be there quicker than you realize. However, on the other side, who knows if you're given a future today or tomorrow. God calls you, you're gone. That's it. It's over. You don't get a second chance. Not like the movie. The guy dies and John Wayne's back the next day or whoever the actor is back in another movie, right? Yeah. That's not the real world. When you die, it's permanent. You're gone. And so, do you need to enjoy life? Yeah, I agree with that. I think many of us work very hard and sometimes didn't enjoy or didn't take time to smell the roses. But on the other side... We knew this day would come where you're now an elder and that you're looking at retirement and if you didn't plan for it, guess what? It's not there. Nobody's gonna count on social security, yeah. not the millennials, they're not talking about that. They gotta save their own money. But many of them wanna spend it today and enjoy it today and then worry about tomorrow. Mm. And I'm not sure if that's good too because then you leave yourself very vulnerable at a certain point in life when you say, I need help. Many of them don't want to pay for medical today because they're young and healthy. They get to our age, and you know, in the 60, 60 you know, age bracket, all of a sudden they change. They change their whole attitude because now they feel the pain, they see the illnesses that they never thought about. So, you know, there's a real dichotomy of the world shift, I call it now. It's shifting. So we need to build and plan for the millennials, but we still have those who are the X generation, and you have us baby boomers that aren't dying off so quickly either, you know? So we need to accommodate, and how do we accommodate? It's a challenge, but you know, I, 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 I accept that challenge. I, I think we're in a good position. I think we're working hard together to make Maui and the state of Hawaii and this country a better place. Um, but with all that being said, I need to know that people understand that what we do 
has an impact tomorrow and many tomorrows to come. And so we better do it right, or at least attempt to do it right, so that we minimize the impact in the future. Outstanding. I, I, I hope you're right. I think one of the things with millennials um, that, that older generations don't really understand is that our economics, the, the things that, that we've seen economically throughout our lives and, and our own personal circumstances are much different than, than generations before us. Absolutely. You know, there's more of a temptation to spend the $20 that you have today when you know you have $120,000 in debt that you can't, you know, get rid of through <laughs> bankruptcy and whatnot. So yeah. it, it's a little bit different. We saw the stock market meltdown and all that jazz, but um, whatever. And, and, and again, <laughs> And no offense to you folks. Oh, and, no, and, and, none, uh, none taken I, I, whatsoever. Know, uh, I respect that. But we, were, we came up in a generation where our parents said, you don't buy unless you have the money. We didn't mm. have that plastic card called a credit card. You know, that wasn't part of our, our lifestyle, you know. If you didn't have it, you didn't have the money, you didn't get it. You didn't buy it, you didn't eat it, you didn't do it. Today, again, you live for the future, like I say, with all that debt. And is that good for you? I mean, our country is in, in, in trillions of dollars of debt. Is that good for us? Oh, I've got yeah. great credit. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I've got tons of debt, but great credit yeah. because I haven't defaulted on yes, it. Yes, yes. So it's good for you in that sense. But, but on the other side of the coin is that you're never out of hot water. Let's say you lose your job. You get sick. Uh, something changes your life. What happens then? Because that debt now becomes a 800-pound gorilla. Oh, yeah. It's on your back. And the debt and the credit companies and all that, and I'm going to say, oh, never mind, never mind. It's okay. We'll forgive you. Uh-uh. They'll drop your credit score so fast, it feel like it's lead weight being thrown out the door. And so, again, these are the things that you, the consequences you got to be thinking of in the future. We knew this. You know, we know our credit rating and our, our credit scores and our debt ratio is so important, and we were taught that. You know, we taught that by our parents, you know. And we as parents try to teach that to our kids, but the millennials are just taking a whole different approach. And I respect that. They're smarter than I'll ever be because they know how to, my eight-year-old grandson, oh, nine-year-old, he just made nine, can get on this smartphone and, and do more things than I can ever imagine. Yeah. But does that make his future secure? I don't know. But like our parents worried about us, we worried about you, and now my children worry about their children. It's a generational thing. Yeah, it's always going to be. It's always going to be there. We always think the world's going to fail with the next generation. And with the good Lord's will, it will not. Mr. Mayor, I want to keep you sure. somewhat on schedule sure. today. Sure, go ahead. Um, so let's, um, let's wind down with a couple of uh, just some softball questions. Yes, go ahead. Um, so rapid fire here. What book would you recommend to any of our listeners Wow, there's a lot of books. But I recommend people read books that have historic perspectives and, 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 and really based on true stories. Yeah. I have a number of them that I've read through the years that I loved. And so I wouldn't pick any one book. But if I was to tell people to read a book, read something that's factual, that gives you some historic perspective. Because I think too many people today don't understand history. Yeah. And if you don't understand history, you don't know why we're here today. Because the past teaches you that. And also, the past teaches you not to repeat, if you're smart enough, that same mistake. So, something historic, you know, I, I, I love history books. I read them all the time. Uh, you know, great leaders, uh, Eisenhower and others, and I, I enjoy that. Great leaders, not only militarily, but politically, and within their communities, you yeah. know. 
uh, Einstein, I read his book and, uh, you know, his life. And, and, and it was intriguing, you know. I mean, there were people that think this guy wasn't too smart. <laughs> oh, boy, were they wrong, you know. I mean, so these are kinds of things that sometimes people have attitudes or have impressions that are totally off base, totally irrelevant, but they think they're right until that person proves them wrong and then they're like, well, I didn't know that. I didn't think that would be that. That's my, my, my question answer to that, what book would I read? All right, and for a specific recommendation, I'll go ahead and throw one out along those sure. lines. It's called The Black Count. And it is yes. about Alexander Dumas' grandfather, the General Dumas. Yes. Um, it's fascinating. Uh, it deals with all sorts of poignant issues like yes. civil rights and whatnot. Yes. So that's my okay. suggestion. Okay. Um, what is guaranteed to make you smile, Mr. Mayor? A lot of things. I'll be <laughs> honest. I think what makes me smile is when I get up in the morning and I see the sunrise and I know I have another chance at life. One of the things I've always worked hard at is making people laugh. Because when you laugh, you feel good. The late, great Jim Belvano, coach of North Carolina State, when, when he was in his last days, he said that, you know, laugh every day because it clears your heart. Cry every day because it brings you back to reality. And love every day because you don't have a second chance at it. Now, I've paraphrased it. I mean, you've ever listened to it. He gives you more clearer details. but. That's my interpretation of what he said. So I like to laugh. I like to enjoy people, and I want people to enjoy me. Some people think I'm a clown. I'd rather be thought as a clown than as a person that's a, oh, what, what, a, what a lousy person to be around, you know? You know, being serious is important at times, but really being funny and, yeah. and taking life's problems and laughing about it. I've always said, when you can laugh at yourself, you can laugh at anything. That's my take on I like it. Um, what goal do you have that you have not achieved yet? You know what? There's not many. I mean, I think I've achieved every goal that I set forth for myself. Um, being mayor of this county has probably been the highlight of my, my career. Um, but I've won awards in many aspects, been uh, given opportunity to serve a national and international organization like the Knights of Columbus. and. You know, I've been honored to be recognized to serve with them in a different and higher level of, of, of service. But when you look at it, when you get back to the all, Mike Victorino, just another guy walking on the street, always saying hello to his neighbors. My wife always said my biggest challenge is I can't walk two blocks <laughs> without telling everybody hi and spending how are you and how's the family. And it takes me two hours in Costco to buy two, two items. That's just me. I've seen you in the airport. It's yes. absolutely true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. Um, what is something that you learned recently? I think what I learned each and every day is the world is different and people are different. And what I learned recently is that no matter how you try to explain the facts, people tend to live on emotion. You mm. know, they don't live on facts and it makes it very difficult uh, to to get your story across, because you're trying to be factual. You're trying to make sure they understand the ramifications of whatever the issue may be. And some are living, and living in a world that, oh no, but somebody told me that this is gonna happen, or somebody, somebody told them this is gonna happen. There's no rhyme or reason other than emotionally the old saying, when perception becomes reality, it is reality. 
and that's what happens. So I've learned more and more in government, especially at this level, there's a lot of perceptions that you've got to try to overcome, but it's difficult because people live with it as reality, not as perspective. Mm. And um, I actually have two real quick sure. questions. One real quick question before you mentioned that you like comic books. Who is your favorite comic book character? Sergeant Rock. Okay. I'm not familiar. Yeah, but okay. you've got to go look up Sergeant go Rock. Okay. Up. And then the, the final question that we're going to end on is what one piece of advice would you give anybody listening? Live every day the best you can. Do the best you can in your business, your family, and your community. And if every day you go out wanting to do the best you can, to always have a goal to make somebody happier, make somebody feel better, to help somebody get off the ground and up again, you'll have a great life. Love your family. Never lose perspective that the real essence of life is really your family. That structure never goes away. And your community always, first and foremost, making it a better place. Because my parents taught me, always leave things better than you got it. Mayor Mike Victorino, that is a, a perfect spot to end on. Thank you so much for your time. I could talk to you for just hours if I had the chance. So uh, we're going to have to do a follow-up interview, but thank you for now, and uh, just God bless and good luck. Well, mahalo for you being here. Thank you, and I hope the people who listen to this, whomever they are, if they get nothing out of it other than being happier and wanting to be a better citizen by being more of a contributory citizen, I've accomplished a lot today. Outstanding. All right. Take care. Bye.